Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. The night he was elected, Andre Dickens made these promises. We can't wait any longer to address these issues. Public safety, it can't wait. Good jobs, it can't wait. Better roads on our street, can't wait. Good transportation, can't wait. Clean energy, can't wait. Affordable housing, can't wait. Small business growth, can't wait. Our children, they can't wait. Progress right now can wait. We have to capture this moment. Well, let's talk about this now. About six months into this first year, we'll have a conversation with Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens. That's coming up. But later in the program. Listen, I, I was counting in the car talking with my producer. I've done 15 of these. At least the ones I could count. And we keep having the conversation about... Democrats will say guns, Republicans will say mental health, and nothing will change. And I'll probably do another one this year. Family after family. CNN's Victor Blackwell talks about covering and processing horrific stories and how they have a toll on journalists of color. All those conversations are coming up, but first this. Some federal government officials say they are set to reform the country's agricultural work visa program. This after a high-profile investigation in Georgia revealed widespread abuses, as we hear from Emily Wu Pearson. It's been six months since U.S. Homeland Security released reports of human smuggling, labor trafficking, and human rights abuses uncovered in a multi-year investigation dubbed Operation Blooming Onion. In that time, Senator John Ossoff called on the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Labor, and Department of State to reform the Temporary Agriculture Labor Program to protect migrant farm workers. Those agencies have now promised changes, from addressing the ways brokers exploited the visa program, creating better training for officials to recognize signs of labor violations, and implementing large-scale outreach programs in countries where many migrant workers come from. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. In other news, and I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, Atlanta is one of the most expensive places in the country to buy a used car. Maybe Andre Dickens can do something about that. I don't know. We'll ask him. Alec Helmick has more from a new report. Supply chain issues have limited the stock of new cars, which has played a role in limiting the supply of used cars. The demand is still there, which has sent the price of pre-owned vehicles up across the country. In Atlanta, the average price per car at the end of April this year was up more than $8,000 than the year before. 
according to price comparison site iccars.com. That price has dropped a little from earlier in the year, but is likely to remain up as long as there is an ongoing microchip shortage for new cars. In the meantime, those with lightly used cars may be able to sell them to dealerships for more than they paid for them when they were new. Alex Helmick, WAB News. Meanwhile, the insurance arm of AAA is warning Georgia homeowners about post-disaster contractor scams. As Molly Samuel reports, that comes as hurricane season is upon us. Scams arise one way or another in the aftermath of nearly every natural disaster. AAA says beware of those going door-to-door and offering their services in affected neighborhoods. The group says try working through your insurance company when dealing with repairs. Get more than one estimate and request references. And be aware of a rise in phone scams from people claiming to be with insurance companies and asking for immediate payment of a deductible. June 1st is the start of hurricane season. Some South Georgia residents are still cleaning up from previous storms. Climate change is making hurricanes more likely to be stronger. It's also making them move slower and drop more rain, which heightens the risk of flooding. Molly Samuel, WABE News. Coming up next, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens in studio. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Speaking of Atlanta, the city of Atlanta, Georgia's most populous city and often considered the economic engine of the state. Now, we know Atlanta's home to some major corporations such as the Home Depot, UPS, of course, Coca-Cola, and as well as great institutions of higher learning. There's also Big Tech. And according to Bim Joyner and his folks, Atlanta influences everything. But Atlanta, much like a lot of cities, is grappling with addressing affordable housing problems, implementing improved public safety measures, coming up with innovative ways to improve transit and mobility for its residents, and at the same time, remain appealing to economic development. Current Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens knows all of this. He campaigned on these issues, and of course, the pandemic still exists. Well, what's been atop the priority list so far, nearly halfway through his first year? Let's talk about it. I'm joined now by Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens. Welcome. Hey, Rose. How are you doing? How are you doing? I'm doing great. (laughs) (laughs) You know, at the time of this broadcast, you're coming from a press briefing to talk about the city's summer safety plan. I want to begin there. Mm -hmm. What should residents know? What did you all unveil this morning, later 
early this morning? Yeah, so we um, went out to, you know, let the public know about our summer safety plan, which actually started already uh, this weekend that we just had was Memorial Day weekend, Atlanta Jazz Festival, a bunch of events all over the city. People were everywhere. And the summer safety plan got put into full effect already, which is why we saw negligible incidents at the Jazz Festival over, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people came out for three days. And then when DeKalb canceled their Caribbean Fest, our Caribbean Fest doubled Mm -hmm. and we didn't have any crime incidents or significant incidents. And this is all because we're using bicycles, um, we're using motorcycles, mounted patrol, which is our horses, Mm -hmm. um, and we're getting out into the community as much as possible, being very visible with police. Of course, our police are are trained to also be very uh, community focused. And so we're doing as much as we can to increase those patrols, but also be very active in community engagement. It was a holiday weekend, of course, but you know, every weekend in in Atlanta, there could be something. There could be a festival or a neighborhood festival or some type of something. Are you able to to do that every weekend? Are you all pledging to do that every weekend this summer? Well, I wouldn't say at that level. I mean, mm-hmm. that this weekend was huge yeah. because of Memorial Day. But each weekend, we're going to be focusing on those things, um, going to those hot spots, you know, Edgewood and, the, you know, the entertainment areas. And this is also consistent with why I created the Nightlife Division. And so we have uh, a team of folks that go out and talk to nightlife establishments, bars, restaurants, clubs, lounges, teaching them about, you know, safety inside their facilities, but around around their facilities. We've had what I call training day, and we're doing that quarterly where we train these establishments on how to make sure that they're safe, they understand CPR, how to reduce people uh, getting intoxicated and starting fights and those things. But then the other thing, Rose, that's also important is our summer jobs program to keep these youth busy and so so many other things like that i want to get to that in a moment but i want to stick with public safety because as you know obviously uh chief rodney bryan officially retires this week we talked to him not too long ago you have atlanta's assistant police chief darren schoenbaum 20 years on the force but he's just stepping in as interim yeah so with this nationwide search are you looking for someone mayor that can come in and give you some strategies and, and innovative ideas or do you want someone that you all can work together and come up with how you want to improve public safety overall for the city. Yeah, so the you know when I came in, I said I wanted to give Chief 100 days, put him on a contract with me to kind of say, hey, reducing crime is the goal, adding more officers by doing better recruitment, and also getting out and doing the community-based policing. Chief and I came to the decision on the 100th day, or just before the 100th day, that it was that he was going to retire. And that's great because now he's uh, his leadership over all these years, the, uh, the department's in a great place. He came in at a crazy time, uh, you know, with the pandemic and a lot of civil unrest. And now, you know, I'm elevating Chief Sherbaum to be the interim chief, and he's got a storied history with APD of a lot of community engagement, LGBTQ community, uh, Hispanic community, all these things. So he's a community-based policing leader, but he's been a zone commander. So he's somebody who can lead the troops. He has the trust of the of the uh, force, but also the community's trust. And so with, with that being said, we have a good, nice... Um, already established ground game. And so what I want to do is hear about great uh, innovative ideas from across the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, People that are sending me LinkedIn, you know, there's majors and assistant chiefs and chiefs from all over the country saying they want to come here and be... They just uh, send you the LinkedIn? Oh, they they DM me in the LinkedIn. (laughs) And they're like, hey, mayor, I heard you're looking for a chief. I was like, wow, you know. But if if you're in a city where you want your 
chief to stay, obviously you may not get that one. But listen, every city is grappling with this in terms yeah. of how we're going to, particularly as there's a continued spike in crime. Mm-hmm. What are the earmarks? What are the characteristics that you really want in this next chief? Yeah, so a chief that would come from out of the city would have to come up with a lot of history and a lot of innovative ideas to overcome the fact that I really want someone who knows Atlanta. Uh, knowing Atlanta is a is a very important piece to this puzzle because we're the heartbeat of the Southeast. Mm-hmm. We got the world's busiest airport. We have all these higher learning educational institutions like the AUC and, and uh, Georgia Tech and State, et cetera. You have all these Fortune 500 companies, So, but you all also have 240 neighborhoods that all you know are valuable so this place is special it's different it's got a storied history civil rights uh is is in our blood so while we are doing policing we have to make sure that we're aware of criminal justice reform and how to do community-based policing that's unfair. are there internal candidates that you hope will come forward and maybe throw their name in oh yeah i would love for some internal candidates to to throw their name in some that are currently with apd some that are you know either retired recently or some you know apd has produced a lot of chiefs that are in other smaller cities now yes i think you one went out to college park yeah not too long ago yes there's there's about five in the metro area and then you go to north carolina you go to louisville you go to some other places and it's like uh this great apd training has produced some chiefs around the nation that want to come back how crucial is this summer? Listen, we know you can't predict. You can't say we are only going to have X amount of, unfortunately, homicides mm-hmm. or break-ins or whatever. You can't predict that. But how crucial is this summer in terms of your department having a hold on the crime spike not increasing too much? Yeah, yeah. Because Some- you went, we went through this before, you know, the neighborhoods want to pull out or people are saying, okay, enough is enough. How crucial is this summer? Yeah, you know, nationwide history tells you that summer is when crime spikes. It picks up every city across the nation. You have to do what you can to manage it. You got more people coming in and going, more daylight hours, more youth out of school, you know, needing something to do. It's just a, a tough time. And so what we're doing is we're making sure that from the police force all the way throughout the community that we have all the tools we need. And that means more cameras in, in, in places that we need them, more lights like my Light Up the Night initiative mm-hmm. so that we can reduce crime and crashes and those things. So we're using the environment to help us reduce crime. We're using community out, outreach to reduce crime, like going to the clubs and bars and neighborhood associations. But we're also making sure that our police department is ready. How, how can you do that to also ensure you don't burn out your officers? Do you have enough officers? You talked about retention being a factor. Yeah. Do you have enough? I don't know if the numbers are. I'm, I'm assuming you check in with the chief. Oh, yeah. In terms of your numbers, in terms of those officers out in the community. Do you have enough? No, we don't have enough. Um, and we are down about 500 officers, depending on the count. Uh, on 500? Yeah, if you if you think about the goal, used to be 2,000 officers. Um, and, you know, we, we've recruited some more, you know. So I would say we put us around about 400 now that I think about how many mm-hmm. we brought in. But it's still not enough. I mean, because I want all of our officers to have support. 
And that means our community then has support. When you go to roll calls, there may be on a 14, uh, in a zone that has 14 beats, sometimes there's 12 officers. Mm -hmm. So that means two additional beats are going, you know, covered by uh, officers taking more ground, which means less opportunity to patrol that area at the level that I wanted or that level that we needed. So that's why we've got these new hiring initiatives. You know, we have, we're bringing on new officers all the time. We just did a pinning ceremony and mm -hmm. graduations are coming. So, you know, we're up in our number of people coming to the police department, but it takes 26 weeks to train an officer. So as we get through these 26 weeks and put them on the street, we're going to have the support that they need. And then we got to do it all over again the very next year. I want to go back to a moment when you were a young person in the city in the summer. What did you do? Did you have a hard time finding a job when you were, you know, in those teen years? No, nah, you know, I, I, first of all, before I was a teen, I was cutting grass. I was going out there, you know, raking leaves and doing whatever I could. I was, you know, a part of organizations where we would sell. Uh, it's it called Southwest Atlanta Youth Business Organization. We sold apples. Okay. We sold all kinds of things. So programs helped me. And that's why I asked you that because yeah. it appears, and you've talked about this before when you were on city council, you had a plan to eliminate the, the the water boys yeah. and water girls first of all is that plan implemented will we still see that this summer or what's the city's doing doing about that yeah Rose. so i am extremely careful about youth this is um i try to i try to think about myself as how i grew up and if i came out there and just pushed every young person out there selling water off the street today and I haven't stood up my summer youth program, don't have everything needed for police athletic league where they can mm -hmm. play ball and summer recreation and entrepreneurship program. If in April or, or, or February, I would have just started locking up young kids that would have hurt me and would have hurt our cities eventually. So now that we have enough carrots, we got everything that a young person needs right now, 3000 jobs, between 14 and 24, you can have a job in this city. We are pushing that out there right now, and you will be paid around $15 an hour. I want you to say it loud, as they say, for the people in the back. Yeah. And for folks that will text me, you're, you're saying right now. Yeah. For those youth age 14 on up to young adults, 24, right. there, there are jobs available here in the city of Atlanta for them. Absolutely. This is what the program is going to help us get these young folks off the street selling water dangerously and into an occupational uh, career field. So between the city of Atlanta's jobs at Parks and Rec and the uh, uh, Public Works Department, the Law Department, and at the city's corporations, Coca-Cola, Georgia Aquarium, Ikea, Amazon, um, Accenture, AT&T, they've all said they're going to hire these folks. I just got an email. <laughs> Ask the mayor, how can my son sign up? It's oh, yeah. Name. Hey, uh, whoever that is, atlyouthengage.com. ATLYouthEngage.com. You go on there. It's two buttons. One is if you're a youth and you want to sign up, all you got to do is put your name and information. Or if you're an employer, you sign up. Two buttons if you're a youth or an employer. And we're doing a matchmaking. That's what we're doing. All right, because the emails are coming in. I want to stick with the youth for a moment, but particularly with the students, because I remember back in your State of the City address and you pledged $5 million towards early education, yeah. challenging APS to match that and the private sector to commit to $10 million. First of all, has that happened? And then how will this money be spent? Is this for existing programs or yeah. expansion of early ed? What, what, where are we with this? Yeah, all this is important. Root causes of crime and poverty, all this stuff goes all the way back to, 
you know, zero through three, a lot of things, you know, the, the infancy matters, the amount of literacy you get as an infant matters. And so that's why I made the largest investment in the city's history, $5 million towards early childhood education. And we already got another $5 million coming from the Whitehead, Whitehead Foundation. We're, we're getting them, them to bring their money to the table. They've said, yes, APS is doing their budget process right now to try to get their $5 million, And that'll put us at 15 towards our $20 million goal. And the way you start something, Something is you go out there and you announce it and you say it and people start understanding the value of it. And so we're already at 15 headed towards 20. And I believe that pretty soon we'll get to that 20. And it's going towards very important programs. So get it this way. Mm -hmm. First, we do have some child care centers. But a lot of them have had no renovation. You wouldn't put, your, you know, it's, it, it, it's not up to par. Mm-hmm. So to get them up to par, we're asking those child care centers, particularly on the south side of town, a lot of disinvested places, come to us and we'll give you grants to improve and modernize and fix broken bathrooms and kitchens. And, you know, you don't have the supplies you need. So we're helping those centers. The other thing we're doing is giving scholarships to parents that can't afford quality child care. So that may be a city worker, maybe a MARTA bus driver or a school teacher that can't afford $800 a month or $1,000 a month for, for adequate child care. Well, we're putting together a grant out of that $20 million to help reduce their costs, paying it to the provider to pay down. You know, maybe they can pay 400 and mm-hmm. we pay 400 But these are the type of things that we're implementing. And the last thing is a little bonus to those teachers that's been taking care of our kids uh, in, in the early childhood pre-K space. Speaking of APS, have you had a chance to sit down with Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring at all? Oh, I sit down with her often. Love working what, with APS superintendent. What are those conversations like? Those those conversations are, are, are very well. She's like, it's great to have a collaborative partner. Um, we're giving, you know, um, child savings accounts to her kindergartners. We've done that. I know. Where was that when we were in kindergarten? I know. I mean, we'd be rich by now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, you know, trying to help her because what we're doing also is we understand that after the bell, so much is needed. They're doing their part during the time of day of school. They're going to handle their part. My belief is I'll help where necessary. But after the bell, after school programs, you know, parks and recreation, transportation to and from these places, how can we help get the kid ready so that at 8 o'clock when the bell rings again, they're not hungry? They're clean, and they got a right mind ready for, for work, work in the school day. So when we talk about the youth, and then we talk about public safety, and we talk about these communities, and you mentioned the 240-some neighborhoods, and neighborhoods have been changing for a while. But you and I sort of had an off-the-record conversation about yeah. housing. So you ready for the affordable housing part of this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy now. I right want to go back, though, because in Mayor Bottom's administration, she had the $1 billion affordable housing goal. First question, is that still part of your administration or is that off the table and you've got to come up with something different? Yeah, so um, mine is more about the number of units. You can put a number of a billion out there, and I think that that was you know, her goal and she was working towards But didn't her goal have a, a 20,000 unit or something like that? Or 20? I'm not exactly sure how many units she okay. said, but I'm saying 20,000 units over the next eight years. And what, what we're going to do is we have a lot of land in this city. 
a lot of land that is underutilized or vacant, that the city owns that the city owns either through Invest Atlanta, Atlanta Housing Authority, uh, MARTA, and even APS has old schools that they're not using school facilities that may they, I mean they're just ripe for us to be able to coordinate and utilize those. The other thing is there are some funding available, and I've made some funding available in my first budget and in the uh, American Rescue Plan money. But there's always there's money out there. We just need to be more coordinated and focused and set the stage. You have the land. It takes time to build for people who are listening to this program right now saying, but I'm trying to find something now. We've had this conversation not too long ago, and I asked the panel, you were on it, is is Atlanta too late right now trying to, quote, fix this? And what does fixing look like? Yeah. Is it just the 20-something thousand units? Oh, no. 20,000 won't solve all our no. problems. It's not enough. Uh, it's a goal that we're going to hit. It's a big goal. Um, but our problem, you know, more people come to Atlanta every day. Everybody's coming here. And so it, you know, inflation is high. You've heard, you know, the cost of even buying a used car. You can buy, buy a new car, sell it, and, and make money off of it. This is a crazy time that we're living in. So what we have to do is someone is unable to wait for us to build out all 20,000 units, which, by the way, I've already broke ground or, or cut ribbons on over 1,000 units already in the first five months. We are aggressive right now. Okay, but what's available now? Yeah, I, I, out of that probably 1,000, you probably got about three, 400 that are that is somewhere that you can apply for right now. And But the deal is we do have to have a lot more um, construction and you know we got down payment assistance for your your listeners that are looking to buy a home because that's important for me too a lot of these are apartments for rent but uh, and we need that but we also need people to be able to buy homes so I got a lot of money out there for down payment assistance that you can go to investatlanta.com uh, to, to apply for I want to be very fair because I, I told you this I was with a friend we were driving around on the west side looking at houses, mm-hmm. went over in Holderness, and shout out to Holderness, so y'all just don't get mad at me. A house on Holderness just sold for a half million dollars plus. Yeah. There's yeah. a million dollar, million dollar. Now, I used to play ball over off Edgewood back in the day, and they were like, get out of here before the sun go down. <laughs> now there's million dollar homes, townhomes, town they are yeah. on Edgewood. Yeah. So, you know, that that tells you gentrification is real. And let me just park right here for a second. In 2013, when I was running for city council, I would tell people in Westview, near Holderness, Mm -hmm. some of those folks over there were saying, we don't need no more affordable housing. Y'all dump all y'all affordable housing on the west side and south side. That's what y'all do as leaders. And this is when I was running for office, and they were saying, we don't want no more affordable housing. I said, wait a minute now. You saw what's happened on Emmon Park. And you've seen what's happened in West End. You're literally next door to West End. You're Westview. And then I said, that train is going to hit Grove Park. And then my neighborhood, Carrier Heights, and mm-hmm. then Sylvan, and all these other. And folks were saying, we don't need no affordable houses. And please know that what's affordable today will not be affordable tomorrow. And what we're trying to do is continue to make sure that people stay in their homes and we give programs to help them fix their roofs, be able to fix those windows that are, you know, leaking air and all that stuff so that they can stay in their homes so they don't have to leave because just because you sell your house for 250 today, yay, because you bought it for 85 Where are you going? Night, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? And if you're a senior, you're going to be farther away from your nexus of knowledge where you have your grocery store, your church, or whatever. Speaking of folks being able to stay in their home, and I've, we've had this conversation before. What is the latest with, I think it's four 
residents left in Peoplestown, Mayor mm-hmm. Dickens. This is going back two administrations now. Is it is it not time for the city to somehow just come to some yeah. agreement with these homeowners? I remember a clip, and I it was from one of the local stations. I can't remember which one. And you said they could stay. Yeah. But now there's some new events. What is, what do you want to see happen? for these four households in, in people's town. Yeah. This, you know, so that, I've, I've, you know, as new mayor, I've inherited a lot of things and even the previous mayor inherited this problem and a couple others. Um, this one is personal to me. I've met with these families, sat in their living rooms, talked to them on the phone. Mm-hmm. They call me, text me, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm advised not to always respond, but I do. Um, and I care about them and I want to see them made whole. I was truthful when I said I didn't want to see them ever get evicted. And it particularly that was November and I was saying it's getting cold. You are not going to get kicked out of your home, not on my watch, while it's, you know, 30 degrees or 40 degrees outside. And we've held true to that. Currently, we are in great conversations about what the path is forward to make them whole and to make sure that we can reduce the flooding for the rest of the community members. So that is an ongoing, which I believe I'll see the end of in this year. We will not be talking about this next year. Does it mean that you're hoping then they can stay or you all offer them fair value for their homes? Yes, the second one, the latter why should they move if there's no flooding? Are you all sure? Because now well, there's, there's another flooding. now there's another issue there because based on the reports, mm-hmm. other reports that perhaps all the information wasn't sent to the courts in terms of the people who came in and did the study. You know, it's, yeah. it's a whole lot of paperwork and all that involved. Yeah. You would rather for these households to sell because you have concerns about flooding. Yeah, so, I mean, I came at this completely at a zero state. You know, I'm an engineer. I like to look at things from, you know, total, you know, aspects of it. So I looked at the engineering of it and the vault that's necessary right now to be able to retain all this water. It's a system. So there's three vaults that are necessary because this is, this is a bowl where they live. I've been over there and I've gone over there after it's rain. And I want to be honest, I, I didn't see any flooding, but maybe I didn't go on the right day. Yeah, well, you got to go on a what they call a 50-year or 100-year weather event. Okay. Um, and there's no shortage of uh, pictures in my phone of water that's all over the place. Um, and that, that whole area is in a bowl. And that's why we have pavers down there. We've got all these things to try to prevent it, but it's just not enough. And so the goal now is to make sure that we make everybody whole by taking care of this very critical issue. Are you willing to say on the record then y'all will give them fair value? Because People's Town was not that far from some of the other neighborhoods. Again, million-dollar homes. So y'all going to look up Zillow, put the address in there, and, and make them an offer? Or how does that work? All that's already been uh, in the works. And and when you look at Zillow, I think they're going to be very happy with what, what we've already been talking about with these families. Because you just said when you sell something, where are you going to go? Right, right. Exactly. On the record, it's not my goal to have someone's house that we need for this project, not not for just a project's sake, but for the safety of the whole community, where this water that sometimes feces and other stuff bubbles up because of the, 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 the you know nature of that uh, system. Um, these folks are going to be able to 
leave out of those homes and go into homes. And that what are would y'all put the, there? Just some type of retention something? A or vault, a, a huge vault, vault that goes underground. And to have a vault, you got to have a pre-vault that you build um, to be able to manage the water while you build out the vault. And then above that would be a garden, like a uh, a pond and a garden, et cetera, similar to like old Fourth Ward Park and uh, the West Side Park. And and I want to honor my time to you, but now you say this, and if these folks leave, we better not see a Trader Joe's pop up there. Oh no, we're not gonna see a Trader Joe's, <laughs> a Family Dollar, or anything. Uh, we're gonna deliver what was uh, what, what was required by the consent agreement, and also what the, the city city needs. Let's talk about then economic development, and, yeah. and I'm going to ask this question again because I asked it to the previous administration. What is going on with Mall West End? We've had this conversation, and to my knowledge, now three developers have pulled out. Mm-hmm. What's been the problem here? Yeah, so when I came into office, I had one of the first set of meetings I had was with Chuck Taylor, who's the owner of the West End Mall. And also a member of the WAB board, for full disclosure. Okay, all right, gotcha. Um, didn't know that. And um, also two teams that are the most recent teams that have uh, worked with him on that. Uh, now, to uh, make sure your listeners are aware, the Mall West End is a privately owned it is. location. But so, you all have but, some say. Yeah, we have some say because most of the projects that you would do there – uh, are going to need some serious sewer work and infrastructure that's underground, which is going to require the city's actions and some, some a whole lot of infrastructure stuff. And we want to see a major development there that's got mixed income housing, that's got mixed use where you got retail, office, and maybe even a hotel. And, of course, all that can be done right there, and it benefit the AUC and the community, and that's who we want at the table. Let's talk about that mixed use yeah. Terminology. Because for some people, when they hear mixed use, they roll their eyes like, OK, they're going to put in like a CVS and they'll put in some, you know, high rise apartments and a few will be affordable. But what does that development look like, particularly for that community on the west side? Yeah. So, um, you know, mixed income is, you know, various housing units from, you know, you know, people that are market rate all the way down to 80 percent, 60 percent, 30 percent of area median income. So your school teachers all the way up to your school superintendent could live there. Um, that's what mixed income is. Now, mixed use means right. retail on the bottom where we have some shops because it's currently a mall. So mm-hmm. we want some of those existing tenants to be able to come back in there and have affordable rents. And then to also attract some new tenants that may be local that folks want to see there. And then above it, yes, above it, you will have apartments, condos or what have you and a Around it may be some office because there's no office space in, in, in that area. Should these developers talk to the community first Absolutely. They, before they come to you all? And, and whether they because most of them want a tax break or some type yep. of tax incentive. Yep. Some will say, well, we don't need it. I mean, unless you're like Microsoft. But yeah. you prefer they really have an assessment uh, meetings and everything with the communities. Yeah. And then put something together and then say, this is what we're thinking about doing City of Atlanta, because it seems like often it's backwards. Right. They'll buy the property and say, hey, we'll come talk to you. And then, I mean, you know. Well, that's the, uh, you know, m- most of my re- responses to them is uh, let me know what MPUT says. Let me know what the AUC consortium says. Let me know what this uh, West End Neighborhood Association says, Oakland City. Let me know what they're saying. And then uh, I need to see the, you know, the tail of the tape from those um, from those uh, meetings. And then I send staff. Uh, my senior advisor is hands on with this. Uh 
but but just rest assured why we have not moved all the way forward just yet with a new you know a new um uh, buyer is because i want to make sure that the community says yes to them that the community says we've heard them and a lot of people um need to feel comfortable about this this is legacy this is important to atlanta this is where a lot of atlantans went to get a lot of their goods and services oh, taken I care used of. to go over there too yeah yeah and when we um we we know that we need to do something with the mall west end it should be iconic and stabilizing for that community, and it should not cause problems, and it should also um, be something we're proud of. And that's why I keep pushing them back to uh, work it out. Where are you with Microsoft and in terms of their community engagement? And are you satisfied with what you've been hearing? Because, you, again, you made a pledge. You told yeah. me, I want to go in and renegotiate, redo the deal, so to speak. Yeah. Where are we with that? Yeah, Microsoft is on their way. Uh, Microsoft is doing what they are supposed to do. They have hired a lot of local talent, a lot of local leaders that are community outreach folks. Uh, they're also um, engaging in the process of working with, they've already started working with the school that's nearby and working with the Community Grove Park uh, Neighborhood Association, Grove Park Foundation. Um, they, they they respond well to pressure because uh, I'm glad the community, this is me saying this out loud, mm-hmm. put everybody on the spot. If I'm on the spot, put Microsoft on the spot. And I've talked to Microsoft extensively and said to them, you you guys are the size of a nation state. I mean, you know, there's countries that wish they were the size of Microsoft. So if we got a problem with education, if we got a problem with transportation, if we got a problem with uh, sustainability and, and, and the Proctor Creek watershed, if we got a problem with affordable housing, you're coming into our city, you are our nation state. You got to solve these problems like a government has to think about these problems. And they're saying, OK. And they've stood up organizational structures around that. Everything ain't fixed yet, but they are well on their way. And um, I'm hoping that uh, the community continues to push them to, on that. As we begin to wrap up, when you look at Southwest Atlanta, Southwest Atlanta, that side of Atlanta, are you optimistic that this will be a community of neighborhoods that will be able to have their legacy residents stay at the same time, benefit from the economic development at the same time, benefit from all those programs you said that the youth need. Mm -hmm. It's like pushing everything that you just said today. It really does need to happen. If there's any part of Atlanta, it has to happen on that side. It has to. I mean, I was born and raised on that side. I still live on that side and I, and I see the gentrification coming Uh, and be clear about this. South side, Southwest residents, they want amenities. They need amenities. They need a grocery store. I'm yes. pushing for that. They need a financial institution there. They don't have any banks on Campbellton Road. They don't have any banks on Bankhead. Get, get that. There's, there, there's limited opportunities for them to have these amenities. So they're taking their hard-earned dollars and usually traveling north or east to spend money to get a button-down shirt for their kid to play in the orchestra because you can't get a button-down shirt in that part of town. Just to think about that. Khakis. I understand. And so now I want to bring the amenities and make sure that we can keep the people in place uh, so that they're not priced out of their homes or uh, or, um, any kind of you know issues with that. What can you all do legally in terms of these investors who are buying up some of those homes over there? because that's part of the problem as well. Yeah. So what I'm hoping for is um, I'm pushing something uphill to the Biden administration and to the state. Um, the, one of the biggest things that happened was 30 to 40 percent of the homes that were bought in 2021 were bought by investors. True. Investors, people that had no intention of living there. They just bought it, fixed it up, and then they threw some you know, paint on it and, and, and moved somebody else in. That immediately starts causing inflation of price uh, inflation. And 
um, what I like to see is federal support to say these banks can't overspend in these communities and gentrify them to the tune of, you know, 30 and 40 percent. That, you know, because I can't be at every closing table. Mm-hmm. But what I can do on my end is try to tell the nation to stop letting that happen, but also remind community members, don't sell out. Don't sell your home unless you're ready to move. And if you're ready to move, I got some other places that I can try to help you get into, but we're not going to see your legacy residents leave all because these investors keep knocking on their door. Finally, what has been the biggest lesson you've learned so far about being mayor of Atlanta? <laughs> Whew, I learned a lot. Um I learned that I, uh, you know, loving this city uh, has has prepared me for this moment. You know, not being cocky about it, but I wouldn't. Um, I feel very, you know, honored that um, every time I say let's do something, that the, the city is like let's go. People are happy about the energy and um, and they feel that they're in a, a, a place of uh, trust. Um, other things I've learned is, uh, you know, that every everybody wants you. Everybody wants the mayor to make this decision, and um, well, you are the mayor. I'm the mayor, and and it's and it's crazy. You know, you've been a city councilman for eight years. You can look around. You got 15 other folks you can talk to about the idea. At the end of the day, that mayor, that mayor button is the button that's gonna say yay or nay. Any missteps that you want to admit to that you wish you would have done differently already? Well, I tell you, you know, I mean, you know, we we, we put forth $58 million towards affordable housing in this first budget. Um, but, you know, council said, hey, we thought we were going to get $7 million for this, uh, you know, the 1% match that we that we that that you, Andre, voted for when you were a council member. I was like, y'all didn't see this $58 million? They were like, we like the $7 too. I said, you ain't got to twist my arm on affordable housing. Let's go. And I wish I would have just, you know, went on and did that in the very beginning i was saving you know trying to manage the you know the the rollout of things but um i'm glad they pushed me on it it didn't take me but two days to say hey guys i'm in let's go and you know those are my you know city council members are my friends supporters allies and i am a supporter of theirs and we push in the same direction on this stuff we'll get it done um and then you know forest cove they right there with me we are helping. Listen, you're going to see some things come out in the next seven to 10 days. People with keys in their hands moving into new places outside of uh, Forest Cove. Um, we've given them three properties to look at each. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, you know, making that move now that school is out. We had to wait for school to get out so that we didn't disrupt those families and their education. Uh, trying to get as many units as we can, 211. We, we're getting a lot of them and we'll keep going. Anybody got some... Um, uh, you know, some units that you would like to give us, three bedrooms, four bedrooms, um, we take them. All right. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens, as always, thank you for coming in, answering the questions. I really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rose. Thank you for all your listeners. W-A-B-E, I looked and I got my um, monthly contribution came out today. <laughs> you <say> that? <laughs> oh, my bad. <laughs> Separation of church and state, my bad. <laughs> we appreciate it. I can, I can get some socks now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so I'm much. I'm a member. <laughs> Close look returns in a moment. <laughs> From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. You know, earlier today I came across a tweet from the account of the Radio Television Digital News Association. Now, they're the ones that give us lovely journalists those lovely Murrow Awards. But the tweet said this, quote, Sometimes the news is horrific, so if you find yourself overwhelmed by the magnitude of the stories you cover, please understand that's okay. While we are all professionals, we are all people, close quote. 
Now, I know you all have expectations from folks like me who work in credible news organizations. And how many times have you, the listeners, heard, and especially during our member drives, WABE brings you fact-based, unbiased, and what we feel is compelling news and information. And sometimes it's good, bad, chilling, lively. Sometimes it's horrific. But I hope all of you, consumers of news, understand that there are times when we, journalists, are also affected by the news. Listen, I, I was counting in the car talking with my producer. I've done 15 of these, at least the ones I could count. And we keep having the conversation about Democrats will say guns, Republicans will say mental health, and nothing will change. And I'll probably do another one this year, family after family, having nowhere to go with their grief. We'll get into a political conversation later, but is this the way we're supposed to live? Are we destined to just keep doing this? City after city? Have we just resigned that this is what we are going to be? I'm going to give it back to you. That is CNN journalist and co-anchor of CNN's newsroom, Victor Blackwell, as he gave a live report from Buffalo, New York, that was at the scene of another mass shooting that took place. That clip went viral. hope you all understand there's a reason why. Joining me now is Victor Blackwell from CNN. Victor, thanks so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Rose. How long have you been a journalist, man? Oh, um, I've been working professionally in, in news. Started in, in high school. Uh, I was working for the Community Times in Maryland and then got a job uh, in Baltimore working behind the scenes in radio and then right out of college at Howard University. Got my first job in Hagerstown, Maryland, on camera, and been working ever since. So more than twenty years. I feel you on that. A bison. <laughs> yes, indeed. A proud bison. When you look back to when you started, Victor, as a journalist, and maybe the first what you might consider horrific or chilling, you know, news story, and then to when you were reporting from Buffalo, how have you changed, and how that has affected you? or does, or will affect you? Oh, well, um, you know, when I started um, my idols, um, I, I can't imagine they would have had a moment like I did. And I think probably when I started, I would have been embarrassed by it. There is a degree of composure that we expect from journalists. But I think now, uh, 20 years in, having done this job for as long as I have. And of course, composure is still very important. There is a degree of authenticity that is expected from uh, television journalists now that that I'm not exactly sure 20 years ago when I started was something that, that viewers expected, in part because of um, the, the landscape, mm-hmm. um, the availability of, of options, and, and what news has has become. Um, I still shoot straight down the, the center. Um, my comment wasn't political, blaming one party or another, mm-hmm. but in that moment, and I think in several moments on our shows, that it is not only um, accepted, but expected that we bring a degree of authenticity, that we b- bring our life experience to um, to the, the reporting that we do and ask the question, get into the angle 
that is informed by who we are. I think that is a great way of summing all of this up. I get that question. I'm, uh, I'm sure you do. I get emails, folks saying, well, you know, you were right on the edge of maybe being just a little bit biased or you were, you gave more of an editorial than a statement, Rose. And it's like, look, in 2020, when we're covering the pandemic and we're covering calls for racial justice, that's my community. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. Ferguson, I used to ride my bike through Ferguson, Missouri. You know, it is hard. If you expect me not to be affected. Now, I agree with you, too. Folks need to understand that. Yes, we're going to try to have some composure when we're live or when we're doing our report, our stand up, what have you. But don't believe that when the. The red on air light goes off or we're no longer in front of the camera that we don't have these moments where we're just like. You want to break down and maybe you have. I know I have. Oh, certainly in 2020. Um, 2020 was a difficult year, as we all know, not just because of the pandemic, but also because of the conversations we were having about racial justice. Um, You know, I am a black man. I'm a black man on television, off television, and I I think it's important to discuss those experiences. I mean, if we want to have a full conversation, if we want to get beyond just the superficial, then it is, I think, a requirement to introduce some of those experiences to discuss them. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially at that time, I'm obviously well-equipped to introduce those topics. And yeah, it was it was tough. Covering these mass shootings, difficult. I mean, you know, we have discussed over the last couple of days some of the high-profile shootings. Of course, um, what happened in Uvalde, mm-hmm. um, comparable to what happened in Sandy Hook mm-hmm. in 2012. But there are a lot of these mass shootings that I've covered that people unfortunately forget. They forget about Chattanooga. They forget about Virginia Beach. And, mm-hmm. and that's that's compounding. What's the feedback been like, Victor, after that clip? You know, um, it, it has been positive. Um, I, I don't really read Twitter uh, responses because of Twitter, what Twitter is often. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have heard from people, spoken with people who see me in person and as said that I was articulating what a lot of people have felt um, over the last several years. Um, and you know, I appreciate that. But even if the response was the exact opposite, it was what I was feeling at that moment. And it was, I think, in large part, what the families and the community members have said, have, have felt, mm-hmm. um, and did not at that moment have the platform to do it. Um, so it's been positive. It's certainly been positive internally and externally You know, uh, at CNN. I, I talked about disconnecting in a sense. Let me ask you this. Then. How do you disconnect? What is your process for when you need to take care of not Victor Blackwell, the journalist, Victor Blackwell, the dude, the man? Yeah. You know, the first thing is, is that I have, and I've talked about this on air, I see a therapist 
because I just think it's good that people in general should see a therapist, but also because of the content that I deal with on a daily basis, not just the extreme examples of mass shootings, but you know, we've covered a war, we've covered all the things that we discuss daily. Um, and some of these things come up in, in discussions um, of, of working through that. I do a lot of reading, I do a lot of writing, I spend time with friends. Um, I don't really have the luxury of disconnecting, as it's called, because even when I go on vacation, yeah. and I make sure I get some breaks in, when I come back a week later, the viewer expects that I have all of the um, details and machinations of the last week when I was off. Mm -hmm. And so I can't say, you know, oh, I didn't know that that bill passed or I didn't know that that happened because I was away. I still, and I probably would do this anyway, uh, read in every day, uh, even when I'm on vacation. So it's, it's a balance. And I make sure that I get in time with people, you know, I love and who love me. Um, but I still got to stay close to the news. I remember reading, and this was during 2020, and there were so many opinion pieces, and you could see it on social media and, and talking to fellow journalists about, look, there is, you have to understand, there is some trauma and covering uh, perhaps racial-related issues. There is some trauma when reporting on tragedies that are affecting a community from where I come from, a community of folks that look like me. And then I heard some folks say, well, you know, you're not supposed to be able to, to you know, it shouldn't bother you. Why do you think that they, there is that expectation that journalists aren't supposed to be bothered by, by what we cover? You know, I, I think it is this, and it's probably the passage of time, and there was a period in which the well, let's say men, because it was mostly men who were the leaders of, of news organizations, were the anchors, um, we didn't see that degree of emotion or connection. Now, we know it was there. Um, you know, I read uh, Cronkite's uh, biography from, from uh, Brinkley, in which we know there was the emotion. We just didn't see it on air. There were a few glimpses of it. Um, but I think that, that it's a holdover of that. And maybe because we cover so much. I mean, you hear a lot of people who, and I know people said this to me, oh, I don't watch the news, it's so depressing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't watch it because, you know, it, it's all about who was killed or the worst part of the day. I mean, I think you obviously need news, of course. Um, but people see us deliver that and maybe believe that we over the years have built up a callus. Mm -hmm. um, and we certainly hold our composure, but we are human. Right? We have families. When there was the riot in Baltimore, I'm from Baltimore, mm -hmm. and I went back to Baltimore and made sure that I offered that context of having grown up there. But that certainly affected me to see the community that I lived in. I lived close to Penn North where that, the, the Rite Aid was set on fire. To see my community in flames, that impacted me, that affected me, and that, I think, is to inform the coverage that we offer. And I also think it's imp important that we are careful about not, and I've used this phrase, harvesting our trauma for consumption for the viewer. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also important to balance that by saying, here is what I can offer to the conversation with my experience, but not um, being careful about using that trauma mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a it's a very difficult balance I understand. inform the questions inform the conversation 
Um, but we are human too. So, Absolutely. I think that's a good way to end this conversation. CNN journalist and co-anchor of CNN's newsroom, Victor Blackwell. Victor, thank you so much for taking the time. You're busy. I appreciate you taking this time. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. That is it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Rezell. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, you can always let me know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, you know it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.